All right. Our um, passage this morning is from Luke 24, verses 13 through 35. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But he had hoped, and he was the one, um, but we had hoped he was the one who would redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all of this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward the evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with him gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they were told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Thank you, Jennifer. Good morning, church. My name is Daniel, one of the pastors here. such a joy to be with you. I just want to pray once more. Lord, my heart is bursting right now. I feel so grateful for your word. I feel so grateful for your church. I feel so grateful that you're with us. And we invite you again to come and fellowship with us and to teach us as we open your word. Give me grace to speak clearly as we've just prayed together. Work in our midst to change us, to mold us, so that the whole world will see and know that you are God. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Amen. So we've come to the last chapter of the book of Luke and nearly to the end of our two-year journey going through this gospel. And what a sweet journey it has been. And we find as we've come to the end pages that there's testimony 
yes, of the finished work of Christ and, and the validity of the resurrection, but we find something else being focused on by Luke. That is the scriptures, this book. Luke starts out this, his gospel saying, hey, I'm writing so that you will have certainty in what you've been taught. And here in these final pages of his gospel, he grounds this certainty, not just on his gospel or on all the gospels, but on the totality of the book that God has given to us. In other words, Luke wants us to see that this entire book is pointing to Jesus, that he is the Savior of the world. Now, I understand that it's hard to see Jesus in a book like Leviticus or the Song of Songs. I understand that, and much of my Christian life has been trying to understand these sort of things. When Jesus says that he is the, the main point of this book, I'm trying to get it. But it's true. And this is why we need God to teach us. This is why we need the Holy Spirit to illumine our hearts. This is why we pray every single week before the sermon that he would illuminate our hearts. We're going to see him do that in today's text. And we're asking that he comes and does it again. That's my prayer for us right now. Before we go any further, let's just look quickly at the context. Last week, we saw that Jesus was crucified and buried to the shock of his disciples in all of Jerusalem. And then women going to the, to the tomb where they thought they would find Jesus. Instead, they find an empty tomb and angels there in dazzling clothes leads them to their faces. And he's, they're saying, he's not here. He's risen as he said he would. Then we see them sprinting back to the disciples, and they don't believe his message. And Peter runs to the tomb and is leaving the tomb, scratching his head, finding the tomb empty and not knowing what's going on. And here's where we pick up in our story. Follow along with me. Verse 13. That very day, it was still Sunday, Two of them, that is some of the other disciples besides the eleven, were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. Notice the specific places and people that Luke highlights. We've been saying this throughout the book of the Luke, Luke, but he wants you to know that this stuff really happened historically. And if you've ever been overseas, you kind of understand this scene. They're, they've come to Jerusalem, the center of commerce and worship. But that's not where they live. So they're heading back to a small village outside of the city. We're told about seven miles outside of the city. They've probably been there uh, traveling to see the Passover, to, to celebrate the Passover with, with other Jews. And here they are going back to life. Now it says that they were talking with each other about these things that had happened. This was not some uh, boring conversation, you can, like they were talking about an uneventful week at work, right? You can imagine they were animated like you and I are when we experience some event with a friend that's spectacular, right? We, we fill in each other's sentences. We say, did you see that? Yeah, this happened. You know, they're, they're saying the curtain tore, imagine it. And the other guy's like, right? And it's, it's from top to bottom. Can you believe it? Yeah, and it was dark. At noon, like over the whole face of Jerusalem, what is, what is happening? The other's saying, I just, I just want to know where he is. There's just a, a gamut of emotions as they 
declare to one another these events. And verse 15 says that as they're talking about these things, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. I love this. Just two men talking along the way, and here shows up Jesus. This is the first, uh, this is the first picture we see of the resurrected Christ in Luke, and guess who he comes to? Some relatively unknown disciples, right? Just like the Gospel of Luke over and over shows Jesus coming, God coming to the least, to the unexpected. And he comes and he asks them what they're talking about. He asked them what they're talking about. I'm getting ahead of myself. But they didn't know that it was him. It says they didn't recognize him. They were kept from recognizing him. That's awfully strange, isn't it? That, that Jesus is there with them bodily, but they don't, they don't recognize him. Is it, is it that Jesus is just like a completely different person after he's risen from the dead? Does he have a different body, a different appearance? No, I don't think that's what's going on. In fact, we see the same sort of thing happening in several other encounters with the risen Christ. Think about Mary in the garden. She's there at the tomb, and she says to the, who she presumes is the garden, Where have you laid my Lord? It's not until Jesus speaks her name that she sees that it's the Lord. So there's something else going on here, and it's actually key to our text today. It says that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. But kept from right by who? Well, this is something that scholars call a divine passive. It means that though though the text is not explicit, it implies that there's an actor behind this act, but it doesn't say who. Context shows us that it's God. It's God who's keeping them from seeing in that moment that it's Jesus. But why would God ever want them not to know that Jesus is there with them? Well, he has a reason for it. We're going to see as we keep going. Look at verse 17. Jesus said to them with a leading question, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, sad. Now, imagine the scene. They're, they're talking with animation. When I'm talking to a friend about something I'm excited about, man, I start to walk fast. I don't know about you. But I can imagine they're, they're moving now. They've got seven miles to go. And, and all of a sudden, Jesus asks them, what are you guys talking about? And it says they stop in their tracks. And they look at him sad. Why are they sad? They're, they say to him, are you the only person in Jerusalem that doesn't know the events of these days? Guys, this is not an overstatement, right? We read of crowds that have gathered that are experiencing this moment they would have all experienced together the darkness on the land the temple turning uh tearing down the middle the sanhedrin gathered together to make this announcement these were known days and jesus question catches them off guard jesus says what things this is funny to me why Jesus, the one that all of this is about, says, what things, right? Why does he do that? Well, he certainly knows what's going on, just as God knew what was going on when he was in the garden and said, where are you, Adam and Eve, right? When they hid from him. No, there's something more. God wants to know their hearts. 
Jesus wants to be in relationship with them. He's, he's pressing in to find out what do you think about these things, right? God wants to know what's in our hearts. He wants to speak to us. Sometimes he'll draw us out this way so we'll just simply talk to him about what's on our mind. So I imagine after this, this question, what things, a long pause from this man, right? How, these men, how do we even, they're just looking at each other. How do we sum this up? Then one says, Cleopas goes bursting forth. He said, concerning the man, Jesus the Nazarene, right? He was, he was a man who was a mighty prophet in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and the rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day. And some of the women of our company, they they said that they were at the tomb and they didn't find his body. And they came back saying they had seen a vision of angels. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just like they had said. But him they did not see. So a few things we can learn from this summary of events. One, Cleopas, who's probably a good example of what the disciples were thinking and feeling in that moment, says rightly that Jesus was a prophet. He was obviously accepted before God, and he was accepted before the bulk of the people though the Jewish leaders would kill him. But verse 21 also shows that he didn't yet understand what Jesus had come to do. He says, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Clearly his hopes are dashed, right? He, he sees Jesus' death as squashing the dreams. So while he understood rightly that Jesus was a prophet, mighty in word and deed, probably having seen many of these things and been under his teaching for some time, he at the same time doesn't understand that Jesus' death was actually accomplishing redemption for them. At that moment, I think he still believed that Israel being delivered from Rome was their greatest need, rather than being delivered from their sin. Jesus came to deliver Israel and the world from sin, and yet they're still seeing Jesus and his work wrongly. Three, they didn't believe that Jesus had risen, clearly. It doesn't even seem that they were looking for a resurrection. Right? Which I, Sam mentioned last week, this is, this is even greater proof, right, that this is not being made up. Like people are, they're not looking for a resurrection. They are simply mourning, grieving. He's gone. Our hopes are dashed. Now listen to Jesus' response, verse 25. He says, Oh foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Wow. There's so much to unpack here. I want to touch on three things. One, human unbelief. Two, 
the Bible's main character and three, scripture sufficiency. First, let's look at human unbelief. Jesus rebukes these disciples for being slow of heart to believe. They're slow of heart to believe. What does that mean? It means Jesus is going to say, he's going to say to them in verse 26, don't you see that it was laid out for you? He uses the phrase, was it not necessary? Was it not necessary? The prophets laid it out for you. It was necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. These people had spent their lives, probably from their youth, studying the scriptures. They had studied the prophets. They had even heard from Jesus' lips before he went to Jerusalem. Hey, we're going to Jerusalem and everything that's written about the Son of Man is going to happen to him there. He told them plainly he's going to die and then he's going to rise. And yet they're slow of heart to believe these things that have been laid out. It's noteworthy that Jesus doesn't mention specific prophets or places. We might imagine that he would say right here, uh, if there were chapters in division, remember Isaiah, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Remember the Psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? But he doesn't do that. He actually just speaks in the totality. He says, all the prophets, all the prophets have spoken this. He teaches them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It's not just one or two of the prophets, but all of them Jesus lays out. And they're slow of heart to believe it. He's saying that it's all there. It's all there. It was necessary. The scriptures have laid it out for you. It was necessary, and yet they do not believe. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, is your heart also slow to believe? Is your heart slow to believe what God has written in his word? Friends, Jesus' rebuke to these men is relevant for you and I today, isn't it? It's relevant. How many times has God spoken to us, for example, that we will face trials in this life, and yet when they come, we are so quick to question God to lose faith. Friends, the problem is not that God has insufficiently spoken or that his word is not clear. The problem is with us. The problem is that our hearts are slow to believe what God has spoken to us. He's laid it out clearly for us, everything we need for righteous living, and yet we are so slow to believe. We're slow to believe. We have dull sight. We have hard hearts. So what's the answer to this problem? Well, we need God's help, don't we? And here's the good news. He gives it readily. Look at verse 27 with me. It says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted it to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Friends, though we are slow to believe, though these men were slow of heart, he says, foolish ones. What does he do? He just begins to slowly unpack it all again for them. Isn't that sweet? Friends, we are so slow to believe, and sometimes we feel that, man, my doubts are just too much for God. No, 
God keeps stooping down to us like we do with our little children. And we say, here, let me show you again. Let me just show you again. I'll walk it through with you again. This is our merciful God. Jesus slowly begins to unpack the scriptures with these two men for seven miles, explaining in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In all of the Old Testament, he unpacks and shows it. Let's talk about the Bible's main character. You need to understand what Jesus is saying here, what this book is claiming when it says that the, all the prophets are speaking about him, it's concerning him. Friends, what it's saying is that this book is all about Jesus. From beginning to end, this book is about Jesus. From the start, it's leading us, it's preparing us, it's showing us that we need a Savior, that God is holy that we're sinful, that we cannot be together, and Jesus is the bridge. He is the way. That is what this book is setting up for us. And so often we look at the Old Testament, we read it, and we see in, it, in the pages a different God. We think, this is just not the Jesus that I read about in the Bible, the loving Jesus. This seems to be like some erratic and angry God. But no, friends, this is telling us that this is the same God through and through who wrote this book, the same one who set up a substitution, a Passover lamb for his people, sent the Son, Jesus, out of love for us. Amen? The whole book is held together around the main character of Jesus Christ, our Savior. The Old Testament, made up of Moses' law, the which is called the Torah, the prophets, the minor and the major, and the Psalms, that is the wisdom writings, is preparation for Jesus. It's all leading us to him. And then the, the New Testament, what it's doing is it's answering questions like, how is Jesus the fulfillment of those words? And why did he have to atone for us through death and resurrection? The Old Testament sets it up, and the New Testament answers the questions for us. For seven miles, man, I wish I were on the, that journey. Seven miles, he is unpacking these truths to these men. He's showing them that his death and resurrection actually give proper meaning to the scriptures. Did you hear that? Without the death and resurrection, this book does not make sense. And Jesus lays that out for them. It's necessary that the Christ should suffer and enter his glory. Now, again, I, I think everyone who reads this narrative, just anybody that's studied the word for any length of time, they're just like, Lord, why couldn't I have been there? What, come, and, come and do that with me, right? But I have some good news for you, friends. We have something better. I really believe that's true. We have something better than seven miles on a road with Jesus. We have this written book, God's Word, laid out for us carefully in our own language, grant to you. It's crazy. We get to read it in our language. We all have copies of them. We read it, and what's more, this is where I get the better language, 
We have the Holy Spirit to help us understand these words. <laughs> it's not just Jesus with one or two men on a road. It is God with each and every one of us ready and willing to answer our questions, ready and willing to illuminate our hearts as we open this book. We're going to get into that more. But friends, it's better. Not only do we have the written words and the, the Holy Spirit, we have the church. We have the present church right here. All the global church. We have the historic church to help us who were also filled with the Holy Spirit, looking at these same written words and saying, here's what it means. Here's what it's pointing to. It's all about Jesus. He's the Savior of the world. We have something more than these men, these seven miles with them. Let's talk a little bit about what Jesus might have been opening up with them and unpacking with them. Taking our cues from Jesus and the apostles' writings, we are taught to see Christ in every genre of the Bible. We're taught to find even in genealogies a leading up to Christ. We see that he is the second Adam, that he's the son of Abraham, that he's the son of David. All the genres are leading us to show that Christ is the fulfillment. And as we study, we find Christ in every theme of the Old Testament, that he's the king, that he's the good king. He's the king we need, that he's the the inauguration of the new covenant. All the covenants find their fulfillment, their culmination in Jesus who inaugurates the new covenant. We, I, I could spend, man, I, each of these points, I'm just going to start rattle them off because it would take dozens of sermons to unpack what I'm about to say. But he's the temple of God. He's our rest. Amen? He's our justice. He's our righteousness. He's the clothing for our nakedness every theme of scripture in Jesus. We find that every major figure of the Bible is pointing us to Jesus. We find that he's the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden. He's the true and better Moses. Friends, I'm, t I'm telling you things that the Bible itself lays out for you. I'm not just making this stuff up. We find that, that he's the mediator, as I said, of the better covenant. He's the true and better David, whose victory became the people's victory. We find in, in Jesus that every major image or symbol in the Bible, such as the bronze serpent, the water of life in the wilderness, the temple, the bread, the lamb, the tree of life, and on and on, are leading us to Christ. And the church and the Holy Spirit confirm, and the Word of God confirm these things. We're not standing on shaky ground when we say that the whole Bible is about Jesus. We're standing on solid truth. In the pages of this book, whether you're reading the deliverance narrative or you're reading a genealogy, you're going to find Jesus. And I'm not talking about unfaithful eisegesis or I see Jesus in every text and, and we're unfaithfully, you know, tacking him on to things. No, I'm talking about intellectual, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Yeah, well, exegesis, yes, but we're, we're doing it right. <laughs> integrity, thank you. Intellectual integrity. We're talking about 
looking at the words of Scripture and comparing the thoughts of Scripture with what the New Testament authors are saying and with what the church is saying and in prayer together, amen? And we track these stories together to see Jesus. And every single week, we try to model this for you as we unpack the words of Scripture. But I want to say, church, I know it's difficult. <laughs> so I just want to invite you if, you, if you want resources, if you want to sit down with one of us and just say, help me, help me understand how I can get Jesus out of this hard passage, please come and talk to us. Or talk to somebody else in your missional community group or in your DNA. I want to understand these pages. I want to understand. We need to do it together. Amen. Oh, and how could I not say, if you're struggling, ask God <laughs> for help. I'm going to come back to that. Now a word on Scripture's sufficiency. Multiple times in this chapter, Jesus helps his disciples stand on the solid rock of his word. In fact, he starts there, friends. We ask the question, why would God hide people's eyes from seeing Jesus? Why would he ever do that? Well, he did it in this case so that they would come to the word, so that they would set their hope on a foundation that is sure, so that those who don't get to see Jesus in person, the resurrected Lord, would have something sturdy to stand on. He had a lesson for us. He had a lesson for them when Jesus ascends into heaven. He had a lesson for us. He wanted to explain to them the validity and sufficiency of this book, that this book is enough for us. If you believe this book, you will be safe. Jesus is trying to show us we don't need a miracle. We don't need to see the risen Christ before our face. We need to believe what God has spoken in his word. We're slow of heart to believe, but he's given us everything we need. The Apostle Peter makes the same point in 2 Peter 1 when he explains that they were eyewitnesses of these things. He says, hey, yo, we were, we were there for all this stuff we're telling you. In fact, we were on the Mount of Transfiguration hearing God the Father speak. This is my son my beloved son, listen to him, and seeing Jesus lit up with the glory of God where he would soon be after his death and resurrection. And guess what he says to us and to all of his readers? Verse 21, no, or I'm sorry, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Do you hear that? Peter just compared his eyewitness experience to the word of God and called the word of God more fully confirmed. Jesus, Luke, our God does not want you to lean on a miracle on sight. He invites you to put your faith in what God has spoken on his promises, what we've been singing about. Our Lord and his apostle want you to know that you are standing on solid ground when you do put your faith in this book. Do we really believe that today? Do we really believe it? I know that all of us would say, amen, brother, right? But does our life show it? 
What we do with this book on a given day, does it show that we are clinging to these words, that these promises are true, as true as if Jesus were standing in front of us? The way that we memorize them, the way that we carefully observe them, does it show that we believe that this is solid rock for us to stand on, that God has spoken and we're going to believe every word? Let's go ahead and continue in verse 28. They drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. Again, I just love this, how the Lord spends the bulk of his first day resurrected with two relatively unknown men. And he goes into fellowship with them. It's going to get even more intimate as he's around the table with them. Look at verse 30. It says, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it. Oh, our God likes to eat. (laughs) And he likes to eat with you. Aren't you glad? It's good to sit down with friends at a table and eat. What a sweet and intimate moment. And look at this. Jesus sitting, breaking and blessing bread and giving it to his disciples. In verse 31, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. That's right, laugh. It's hilarious. He just leaves right there while he's breaking bread. Man, there's so much here, just like each of these things. So I'm not going to try to keep you too long here. But, but Jesus, if you remember, he taught his disciples over meals many times. You, you remember the feeding of the 5,000. He's breaking the bread. And what does he say to all the people? He said, I am the bread of life. Anyone who comes to me won't be hungry. Anyone who comes to me won't thirst. Or think of when he breaks the bread with his disciples. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What you see in this moment of table fellowship is an example of how our God shows up to commune with us and give us faith when we open his word. When we remember him around the table together, when we eat together. It's not just the disciples of the first century that Jesus wants fellowship with, church. He wants fellowship with you and I. And when we open the Bible together, when we break bread together, when we fellowship with one another, when we preach this good news to one another, God comes near to you and I. Amen. He comes near. And I know this all seems very natural when we read this book sometimes. When we sit in the mornings, we try to do everything we can to try to make it some special experience, but it's still just a candle, and it's still just a book, and it's still just a cup of coffee in your hand, and it's still just a couple other people and some pews and some bread and some juice. But behind all these things, church, is something supernatural. It's God's presence coming near us to speak to us, to fellowship with us like he is with these men. Can you say amen to that? He does. He comes near like this. The word made flesh comes near to us by his Holy Spirit, and he feeds us a meal that satisfies us more than anything else in this world. 
He feeds us. And this is why we keep coming to the word. This is why you listen to, to guys like me continue to preach it. We do our best, but I'm not the, the main event here. It is God and his word that we come around, that we long to hear. We don't say, oh, Daniel, please open your word very clearly to us. No, we pray to God, oh, Father, show me, open my eyes, let me see you again, let me be near you again. God is who we're fellowshipping with when we come to this book and this table, amen? It's true food, and it's all about Jesus. And when we come to it, we are fellowshipping with Jesus who alone satisfies. But here's where we need God when we come to him. We need him to open our eyes. We need, we need him to open our eyes to see something behind what's natural. It says that their eyes were opened when they're sitting there with the bread. Their eyes were opened. Think back to that, the beginning where it says that their eyes were kept from seeing, right? Their eyes were kept from seeing by who? By God. And now who's opening their eyes? Again, it's God opening their eyes. And how does he open it? He opens it by the Holy Spirit. And this is actually really good news for us. Maybe you, maybe you read that and you're like, I don't really like that God has the power to open my eyes or, or, or not allow me to see. Well, friends, if it weren't for God, none of us would see him at all. <laughs> None of us would even come to him. We couldn't see him. We'd read this as natural things. We come into this as a social club. It's only the spirit who can give us sight that Jesus is who he says he is. That this is a supernatural event, that we're fellowshipping with God when we come here. This verse is strikingly similar to verse 45. When Jesus was with the 11, it says that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. I believe it could also be tied to verse 32, where it says, as they respond to one another, they said, did our hearts not burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? You see here, eyes opening, minds understanding, hearts burning. I believe all of this, friends, is pointing to the work of God to illuminate hearts so that they can see Christ. Illuminating hearts as they open up the words of Scripture. Their hearts burned within them because God was near. Amen? Jesus was standing there. They didn't know that it was Jesus, but here they are. They're burning like something's happening as this guy's opening this book to us. In the same way, church, when we open up God's word and when we fellowship together, something supernatural is happening. I keep saying this. It's more than natural. When we come to him, church, with hungry hearts, saying, I want to know you. I want to see you. Teach me. Shine your light on my hearts. This book, which seems foolish to men, becomes our bread, our life, our food. Our hearts begin to burn. This week when I was studying and reading through this section, my heart was burning and I could not help yet again to just go to my face. I told my wife, today I felt like I was in the presence of the Lord. I was on my face before my king, just felt like I was clinging to him. And then I stood up and I just felt like, oh, he's so, I feel him so near I could hug him. 
What was I doing? I was just simply opening up the book and saying, Jesus, show me. He comes near to us in this way. He's risen, friends. Isn't this proof that our Lord is risen, that he comes like this for us? It's what he taught. He told his disciples that when he leaves, that he was going to send the helper. Verse, or chapter 14 of John's gospel says this, these things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. And then in chapter 14, we see, or 16, he says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. Friends, we don't see Jesus right now, but I can tell you that he's here and he's speaking by his spirit. He is present with us, just as he's promised. Right now, he's speaking to many in this room. Our hearts are burning. Right now, around the world, people are confessing that Jesus is Lord because he's showing up and opening eyes and minds and hearts to see and to believe and treasure Jesus. So the story finishes with these disciples jumping up. Remember, it's nighttime, and they go back to Jerusalem. It says they returned that same hour to Jerusalem. Friends, when we have an encounter with Christ, when our hearts burn in us this way, there is no danger that will keep us from going and telling the good news of people. Right? It could have been dangerous for them to go seven miles at night back to Jerusalem, but they do it full Man, that God would do that to us when we're telling our neighbors about Jesus, that we wouldn't let awkwardness keep us. It says, they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Friends, they, they got to the disciples, and what do they find them already saying? Before they can give their good news, the other disciples are saying, he already showed up. We know he's risen. He showed up to Peter. He's really risen. And they're like, us too. <laughs> Like just proofs of the resurrection are stacking up for these guys. And they're rejoicing. And they're telling one another. The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. I want to say something about why the use of the word Simon. Remember in the Gospel of Luke 22:32 that Jesus spoke to Peter, gave him the name Simon. He spoke of his old name when he spoke of his betrayal. And I believe that Luke is highlighting here for us the fact that Jesus had sought out Peter despite his betrayal. Why does that matter for us right now? Here's why it matters. Because you and I are dull. <laughs> we're foolish. We're slow to heart. This week, this morning, many of us fell into sin again. Why did we do it? Because we disbelieved. Because our hearts didn't believe the truth. And yet God keeps seeking you out, just like he did Simon, just like he did these men. This is good news that he mentioned Simon's name because God comes to you and I. He graciously keeps coming to teach us. So here's the good news. We are foolish and unbelieving, and God could have left us there. 
He could have left us in our sin, and yet he came. This book tells a story that's really rather simple. That though we ran far away from God in our sin, we chose not to believe what he had said. He sent his son to bring you back. That you could have fellowship with your God again, eternally. If you're here today believing that message, I just want you to simply cling to it. Cling to his word afresh this week. I want you to have new eyes for this book and new eyes for the gathering of the saints and new understanding of what we're doing around this table. We're fellowshipping with Jesus. We're fellowshipping with the risen Christ by the Spirit. So I want you to celebrate that this week. And if you're here and perhaps you don't know the Lord, right now is a perfect time. He's drawing near to you. He's speaking to you through my words, through this book. And he's inviting you to come and fellowship with him at a table. Turn from your sin. Turn away from your own idea of who you are and who God is and let him define your journey. Let him give you true food and true life. He welcomes you. Come, repent, confess that he is Lord and be baptized. So church, I just want to call us now as I invite the team up and we pray to worship the Lord right now as if he is risen and that he's with us. Let's worship him that way. Okay, let's pray. Father, I want to talk to you like you're in the room. I want to talk to you like you're here. And I ask that you'd help us, Lord, to experience your presence right now. A deep sense that you're near us, that you love us, that you want to fellowship with us. Come and teach us. Open our eyes as we sing and as we pray. Thank you for your cross. Thank you for dying the death that we deserve. We deserve death for our rebellion, but you gave life eternal. So we come to you now, receiving it, clinging to that truth. We love you, King Jesus. Help us to worship you with overflow of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.